Okay, number 166. Are we on it? Any questions or thoughts from anything that, anything lingering from the past? Okay, Tom, is this actually your last class? You must ask a lot of questions so that we will remember with a great pleasure. Tom is not leaving the planet, he's just leaving the state of California. <laughs> One of the ones we were talking about last week, where Swami was asking Master about can an avatar have a life like William the Conqueror and still be in Samadhi? Yeah. And Master said, you never lose the consciousness of freedom inwardly. Yes, you never lose the, yes, exactly. So I was thinking about that word inwardly. Yeah. Then I realized that when I'm in trouble, mm -hmm. it's because inwardly I'm just... So it's inwardly where it happens first and then it shows up outside of you. But when, when, when we get off inwardly, that's where it first happens. And then it shows up outside as some kind of mood or emotion or, you know. No, actually, that's, uh, that's actually I mean? very, yeah, yeah, very still. And um, I think about this. More recently, I've been thinking of it uh, in, in slightly in reverse, but it's been the same realization, which is when there's nothing happen, that inwardly I'm still not completely relaxed. That, that there's a degree of, of just sort of an undercurrent. Uh, uh, anxiety might be too strong a word for it, but I'm certainly not relaxed. You know, it's just like I'm, I'm, I'm a little, the fight and flight is still um, cocked and ready instead of just being completely. And if I was going to, if I would speak specifically of the difference between how I feel and how I watched Swami be, it was this e enormous state, I mean, this, this profound state of inner relaxation, no matter what was happening. That's what, and that was the phrase I've often used, I never saw him rattled. He just was never rattled, no matter what was happening, no, even if his body was struggling, even if circumstances were difficult. It, he never let it, it, it came to him from the outside, but you're right, it never emanated from his inside. But that didn't mean that he didn't feel things deeply. He felt things very deeply, but he never allowed it to rattle him. And it never actually, well, he said himself, he just never allowed anything um, to disturb his peace. That's a whole conversation Well, that's the whole spiritual path. So that's what we talk about all the time. But just, as I was saying, the inner realization in myself that there's just that undercurrent. It, uh, uh, it just... It, it's a greater level of awareness. You just you just step by step as you get, as you progress. You just peel back the layers of the onion. You get more humble. You realize more seriously what you're dealing with. You recognize that superficial solutions are not real solutions. And you just, to me, I mean, I just exhale and realize this is a big project. And even if uh, time is an illusion, it's not an illusion to me yet. But, but even the realization of something like that, which is really very subtle, it's a good sign because it was never not true. It was just that I didn't know it. Yeah, so now that one becomes sensitive enough to realize how deluded one is, that's actually, <laughs> that's actually progress. You follow that? Yeah, it is progress. But it... And that's where humility comes from. It's just ever-increasing awareness of our vulnerability and our uh, just how much we have to depend on God. I've sh I shared with you all because last year I read uh, 
Imitation of Christ, which I had never read before and Master recommended and Swami recommended. I'd never read it before. I could never quite tune into it, but somehow last year I was able to tune into it and I read it very slowly. Um, and there's, the reason I, I just didn't get it before because it has this very uh, Catholic, I am a sinner, I am a sinner, I am a sinner. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't comprehend what was really being said there, but this last year I did. And, what, and, and it was, there was a couple of really fascinating points, which was just, you know, that realization that um, everything that is egoic is flawed, and everything that is egoic is going to cause you suffering. And we're, we're just, to be actually totally free of any of that self-identification is simply to be vulnerable and to be flawed. And, and as you progress on the spiritual path, it's, it's, it's a little incomprehensible Sometimes when we're more neophytes on the spiritual path, we're busy affirming our perfection all the time. And then those who get really advanced are constantly talking about how sinful and worthless they are. And it, it gets very confusing. But when you, when you really tune in, at least I did through that book in the first time I ever did, I kind of heard, I suddenly heard what they were really saying, which is not that they, whoever wrote that book, Thomas Akempis, did not have an extraordinary experience of God, but in his experience of God, the remnants of his own egoic identification—it uh, was just so, so, such, a, such clear folly, and and was so, uh, so subject to the power of God that he, he just he lost all pride. He became completely humble. He saw that there was just nothing about his egoic self uh, to be proud of. And it, it, the whole thing is very devotional. It's very, it's very I-thou. It's not, it's not a Vedanta treatise in which, you know, all is Brahma. It's definitely the devotee in Christ. And so in that relationship with that devotion where you're always um, expanding your awareness by your devotion to the Ishtadeva or to the Guru in this case, um, you just see yourself in contrast to it, but it doesn't make you small, it makes you bigger. You see, that's the, that's the key. It d didn't make him small and afraid, it made him, uh, it made him wildly indifferent <laughs> to the preferences of that little self and the powers of that little self. It was just, it was laughable compared to the power of God. And in one part of the book, he even put that in where um, he said, you know, words to the effect that God makes sure that, that we, we, we continually make mistakes from that little egoic identification so that he can continually remind us that without God we are nothing. And those are words that I had I'd been read many times, but with the Vedantic bias I couldn't exactly feel it. But I could, I could suddenly, I suddenly got inside of it as a devotee, and 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 just saw how in those those seemingly negative words, there was just such a joyous relaxation, in the complete realization, that why, you know, just give up the effort, just let God and Guru take over because you're never going to get it right by yourself, and so the, 
to bring that to where we were, you know, my awareness of this vibration of tension, obviously that tension is based on the fact that I feel somehow I'm responsible. And, and I know <laughs> that that is a, a really bad idea because how can I be responsible? They're just the whole power of the universe is out there. How can I possibly hold up against that? And, and so just the, the, the freedom that comes is the freedom of, of not resisting the idea that you're nothing, but this is what Thomas Akempis was trying to get us to see, but just, just tremendously embracing it because on the other side of it is where we really want to be. It, 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 it's all about consciousness. You put it into words and, I mean, the writers, they put it into words, they're just doing their very, very best. But when Master wrote Whispers from Eternity, he encouraged the reader to penetrate through paper and ink, is how he put it, to the actual divine vibration on the other side of it. You know, paper and ink is, I think he said something like a mute person trying to speak. Because what he was really trying to say really could not be embodied in paper and ink, but paper and ink might be able to, to trip us into the vibration he really wanted us to have. And uh, so even the, um, so anyway, so even when you read Great Souls, and that's why people argue because they don't know what the Great Souls really meant, or one rejects thinking this isn't really my path or something. That's where I've also been reading a little about Ramakrishna's. Every so often I read these books about Ramakrishna's disciples because they're so terrific. And, uh, you know, just biographies of saintly people are so... I, I love biographies of saintly people. I don't usually like philosophy because I like Kriyananda's expression of it the best. But the biographies are just... There's a couple of books. They Walked with God, Ramakrishna as they saw him. They're wonderful books. But Ramakrishna practiced all these different paths. So he, became, he, he just picked up Christianity and became a Christian for a while and got into how you get there from here. He became Radha and figured out how you get there from here. Just these are all these different roads. So reading, I've never been able to read the, um, the self-abnegation that so often comes with Christianity, but... but Master recommended that book, so you know it's got to be in there. And then you think, oh, this is really just another way to say it, and a way that um, speaks to the devotee's heart, because it's, it's really just devotion. It's not philosophy. It's not that it isn't philosophical, but it's just pure devotion. What does the world look like when I love God so much? Very good question. So yes, when Master was by himself. There were no vrittis to disturb him. I remember many years ago, Swami Kriyananda was in seclusion and I was working for him, so you know, he had me come in every once in a while. This was like 72, you know, something very early. And he, he still took care of himself then. He, he didn't have a housekeeper and he cooked for himself. I mean, I would occasionally, and others would occasionally cook for him, but he was, able, he was, he was in his 40s. I mean, he was perfectly capable of taking care of himself and he loved being alone. Only slowly did he absorb all that staff just out of necessity. But I remember um, I arrived and he was in silence and he, he didn't break his silence. He just would communicate through notes. But he was still um, 
making his lunch when I came in. And I, I vividly remember what is now the Crystal Hermitage living room, where it's all open like that, and there's the a raised platform where the grand piano is. Many of you have seen it. In the original design, that whole raised area was actually a kitchen because the whole house was one room. So that, that was the kitchen, and I was sitting on the couch in the living room, and Swami was making a chapati. <laughs> and I just watched him make a chapati. And just, in, you know, he'd been in silence, and I was in silence, and I just watched him make a chapati. And I, I actually I remember writing it down. I reread it recently. I just thought, what is it that makes his making a chapati so different than I've ever seen anybody else do it? And of course it was just, he was so utterly connected to the divine that even in such a small gesture, the, the, the normal veneer of egoic self-identity, it just wasn't there. I mean, that was the whole reality of him from when I first met him. It just wasn't there. So even though he was engaged in something so mundane that was even actually to feed his own body, he just didn't have that veneer of this is me doing it. He just, he'd just given it up. In other words, when he was by himself, he was completely free in his heart. He wasn't agitated with the kinds of attachments and self-concerns that bother most of us. Very, you know, very vivid, strange little moment like that when you just see something you've never seen before. And by the grace of God, recognized it. You, know? you think you, that uh, all my years with that man and all the really interesting things I saw, but honestly, watching him make that chapati, still, after, how long ago was that? I still, it's just, I can see him up there. And also, just my puzzling over it. Well, what is happening here that I've never seen before? You know, we all know lots of people, lots of great souls, but you just don't see that. So I guess you can imagine how Master would, as William, he would deploy his troops, he would lead his troops, he would carry his own sword, he would uh, be a, a, a colonel to the, I mean, a general to these rough men and captain them and do all of that sort of thing. But when he wasn't doing that, the place he came back to was one of, well, he called it inner freedom. Just, I'm doing this, but when I'm alone, it no longer exists for me. Where when I come back to myself, I have a lot of company. <laughs> and, you know, the company, I, I, the company to me is not merely <clears throat> what I can describe is Asha and her life that she's lived, but I can feel it's all of the incarnations that I've been identified with are still hanging around, sort of like ghosts. And they're all just whispering and clamoring a little bit for some of my consciousness, and habitually I still give it to them. So they, they oscillate. So there's not freedom because they're oscillating. Of course, you know, every so often you step out of it. You just have those moments. And that's what they feel like, isn't it? That complete calmness. This is what uh, I talked about Krishna Das's story about meeting Swami and just being in a state of absolute desirelessness where he just didn't have to hold any of those. And, he, you know, he just saw for a minute, oh, look what that would feel like. I, I described it to you all once as having, a, uh, when I was contemplating what it would be like to be completely without fear and just for a split second 
the curtain parted and I felt that. That would be another way of saying it because attachment is fear. If you're not afraid, why would you hold on? You're holding on. One, one holds on because somehow one is anxious about what would happen if you didn't. Because when, you when you're not afraid of the alternative, then there's nothing to hold the present. So, okay. Any other questions or comments about any of that? That was a very good question, Tom. We will miss you. Number 166. The Master summoned Clifford Frederick, a disciple at Mount Washington, to his desert retreat. Can we... <laughs> the sound of Velcro. Are you done? Okay. <laughs> the Master summoned Clifford Frederick, a disciple at Mount Washington, to his desert retreat. Clifford came but was privately worried about the duties he was neglecting by his absence. The master said to him, I know you are worried, but this now is your responsibility. I go by the orders of the supreme boss up there. It is to him you are answerable. Don't bother with anything else. Be free inside. If God told me at this very moment, come home, I would gladly drop everything, organizations, buildings, work, books, people, everything to do his will. This world is his business. He is the doer, not you or I. I had a, a, I remembered when I read this, I had a similar lesson from Swamiji in 1982. <clears throat> I uh, was uh, a key member of the retreat staff at Ananda Village. And I was in just beginning to engage in what led to this. And uh, it, was the, it was the Sunday night in which Spiritual Renewal Week was starting and all the guests were beginning to come. And, you know, I was one of the key people there and we had, had a whole system worked out about greeting the guests and everything would happen. And Ananda Ma died that day, whatever that day was. And Swami sent word to come to his house for some kind of an event and he, he held a, a ceremony there and I remember feeling so like obligated and just I was very conflicted but I just made the wrong choice because I sort of felt like I was a big part of that and I needed to be there so I didn't go so I missed that ceremony which like what could I have been thinking? You know, and then everybody came back an hour and a half late and everything had gone fine and everything would have gone fine. <clears throat> but it wasn't just what I missed. But the next day, Swami actually said to me, he, he, he reprimanded me quite sternly for not coming. And um, there were occasions when he reprimanded me, but as a rule, he didn't because I tended to take it too hard. So he would guide me without having to be too direct. This time he was really direct. And he said, you know, you were so busy thinking these are my people, you know, that you had to be there to take care of your people. And then he said, they are not your people, they are God's people. Just like that. And boy, I never forgot it. But it was really, he, he threw the, the gauntlet down to me and I waffled and went for responsibility, you know, which I, of course, never did again. I always knew that if he wanted it, and I mean, I've counseled other people like that, 
you know, Swamiji wants you there. You just, nothing else exists. What difference does it make? Everything will sort itself out. And it's, it's a very important thing. It's not, nobody is counseling irresponsibility. But nonetheless, we get this thought and idea, idea that it all really does depend on me. Of course, there was a period of time in my life earlier that I had to learn to be responsible because my choices were all based on my personal pleasure, not on my responsibility. So there was a whole reverse curve where I always had to do exactly what I said, no matter what better option came to me, with the exception of Swami calling. But once I had that down, he was watching this um, wrong thought really growing, that, it, that I'm the only one who can do it. I mean, we, we all get into that. I'm, you know, I'm good at this, and I'm the only one who can do it, and I know how to help them, and other people may not be able to, and I can do the altar, and I can do the flowers, and I can do the database, and I can do the solo, whatever it might be. All things being equal, why not? But this is God's world. This isn't our world, and we always have to know that. Because at any moment, anybody could drop dead. That's also a part of it. And then what would they do? I know there was a story, speaking of Ramakrishna, where some wealthy man was talking to Ramakrishna about all the things he'd done, the hospital and this that he'd helped, and just all the projects he'd carried out with his money. And then Ramakrishna, in his childlike way, said, my, I wonder how God ever got along before you were born. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, as the story is told, the man heard it. You know, do you think it really matters? All of this... Um, all of this was created for us to learn one lesson. You know, it's not like it really does depend on us. So it's a, it's, that's the inwardly free part of it that we really have to always capture. And, and Master says that if, I, if God called me home, I would just go. And he really meant that. And it's the balancing point because Master gave every moment of his consciousness and every ounce of his energy to the cause, but inwardly he was always free. And even though, of course, you know, he'd, he'd been chosen for the job and there was none other, nonetheless, he was only doing what God wanted him to do. You see, that's the difference. That's that wonderful thing that Mother Teresa of Calcutta said when some journalist was sort of challenging her on whether her methods were really effective in terms of helping the poor, that really wouldn't, you know, the government take it over and do a better job. And it's just, you know, the goofy things that people say. This was an interview in some documentary about her. And she just looked at the journalist and she said, you look at me and you think I'm helping the poor. She said, I'm not helping the poor. She was a very plain-spoken lady. I'm not helping the poor. I'm doing what Jesus asked me to do. Just a total flip. I don't think, I think the journalist just kind of blinked and went on. I don't think he had the foggiest idea what she just said to him. Because from our side, we looked at, we, had, we imposed our values on her. She was operating from a wholly different level. The implication of that is that if, if God had told her, you know, to walk away from it, obviously she would have walked away in a heartbeat. If he told her to go administer to the celebrities of Hollywood, she would have gone and helped them. Because her only interest was doing what Jesus wanted her to do. And because he asked her to do it, she gave her whole heart to it. But it wasn't because in any way it was inherently important. We heard Swamiji say that so many times. He, he did what he did because Master commissioned him to do it. You have a great work to do, and you need to do it. And so he did. But he said himself, it just, none of it ever meant anything to him. It all just passed through him. And he would say, I never did anything 
um, partly he was talking to us about how you accomplish that much, which is by allowing God to run through you. But the other side of it was he never did anything. And at the end of his life, he said, when I die, I want, I want to be able to answer one question. I want, I want to be able to say I was a good disciple. That meant he had to do this, but it had no meaning except for that. We have to all keep that in mind because that's, that goes right back to inwardly free. Because sometimes people try to stay inwardly free by not participating. And of course the Gita goes, you know, you don't reach the actionless state by inaction. You have to be, act, you have to be non-action, inaction. I mean, it just goes on and on with all those words, the action and non-action. <laughs> But that just doesn't work. Gage is extremely explicit about that. If you just, if you consciously hold yourself aloof, that's an action. That's not not acting. That's resisting. So it's very, it's a very fine line. And Master said also, Swamiji wrote, the best way to overcome the ego is through selfless service. So people get all caught up in the very Vedantic ideas that maybe I shouldn't really do it. But it's a, it's that's a very it's not that it's a path that can't be walked, but it's, uh, it's fraught with, there's a lot of potholes in that path because the determination not to get involved is sometimes detachment and sometimes fear. It's just a tricky business. So here we go. Okay. That's why the examples of the great saints are so important to us because otherwise you can reason it out any way at all. I remember once, early years of Ananda, but, but all the way through, even like today, for example. <laughs> in the early years of Ananda, we just worked all the time. We worked so many hours, you know, every week and constantly. And it wasn't, by no means were we, we weren't workaholics. You know, we, It wasn't like we were crazy. It's just that there was a lot to do and we were very active and we needed to raise our energy levels. Just, we just weren't there to to just sit around. So we were always just Swami was generating projects and making events and just keeping us really, really busy. And then I remember somebody came to him with some original writing of Master and it said, you can find it now, it says, you know, met, uh, work about five hours a day and, you know, meditate long hours in the morning and meditate long hours at night and do a little God-reminding work in the middle. And he brought it to that, to Swami. In those days, people would challenge Swami more you know, as if they could find a book that Master had written and that was more valid than what Swami was guiding us to do. But he did, like that. Swami just so just went like this, oh, that's for a higher age. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> he said, Master was writing for another time, not now. He said, now we're establishing a beachhead, was the word he used. You know, we're the first wave, he, he would refer to William, we're the first wave of conquering this materialistic not just America, but this materialistic yuga and trying to replace it with a, a more advanced yuga. And this is, the, we're the pioneers. We don't, you know, the, the pioneers farm. The children of the pioneers can take piano lessons. <laughs> but the pioneers just don't have any time to take piano lessons. It's just not, it's not an option. And that's sort of what he said. It's not that we don't meditate, but it's not our job. But you see that in Swami, just like they set an example so you take all these conflicting points of view, and I mean that's why it's just so powerful. To, that well, that's why the masters incarnate. When you watched the movie Awake, you really got the picture of master traveling all over the country and 
fighting against all these obstacles and being betrayed by his own people and then just, you know, effort. And you realize he was just like Swami. He was always, I mean, that, of course, Swami was just like Master, but, but I watched, and many of you watched Swami's life and only heard about Master's life. But that movie helped you see that he was establishing a beachhead. He wasn't just sitting in samadhi, just sort of letting it happen all around him. He was right in the throes of it. So when we find ourselves in such a position, it's not um, an aberration. We're true children of a true master. And this is still a beachhead. I mean, we're so far from being established. We're still just, you know, just putting down the first roots and to really ground this teaching in a tangible form and in a, a with the power that it needs. You know, in the in the end of a disciple's, in the end of Master's life, the end of Jesus's life, apparently often at the end of a, an avatar's life, he he separates the wheat from the chaff. Uh, when Swamiji wrote to him about um, uh, how many monks were falling away, uh, uh, Swamiji came to Master and with, I believe this is in the path and talked about how concerned he was about one of the monks who was going to going looked like he was going to leave. And Master said, "God is testing the organization," is how Master put it. And he's just those who don't have the strength are going to go away now not that they would leave the path or master was trying to drive them away from the path it's just that master knew he didn't wasn't going to be there much longer and he needed that entity that his close disciples into whom he had poured so much they had to be very strong because now they were going to have to go forward without him and the same of course in the life of Jesus much more dramatically eat my body drink my blood and from this point, many walked with him no more. That's what the Bible says. Jesus deliberately said something to them they could only understand by intuition. And those who didn't have the intuition went away. Jesus had helped them as much as they could be helped, but he needed, Jesus knew what was going to happen to that band, which was, you know, pretty serious. And he knew they had to be rock solid. They couldn't have somebody in the midst of them who was vacillating. They, it just would have been too unstabling. So... He had to send them all away and just get that core really there. You know, this is what <clears throat> this is what the work requires of us now. It's a, this is a sacrificial life, if you want to think about it like that. Swami talked about that. Swami talked about it in terms of his monasticism once he was expelled from SRF. He became a monk in a monastery. Master made him a monk 30 minutes after they met. Um, despite the fact that Swami himself said, you know, in certain aspects of monasticism, he was not entirely settled. But Master made him a monk, so he said, fine. So he was a monk in the context of a monastery, which is a very protected environment. There's, you know, just, you, you go home to that, and you, there you are. Then he was expelled from the monastery. And he was completely on his own, and uh, in a country that doesn't respect monasticism, that has no tradition uh, in which women are very aggressive and um, have, there's just no tradition and Swamiji then felt it was his responsibility to start spiritual community because he knew SRF wasn't going to and he had been so inspired on July 21, 1914 July 31, 1949 I believe it was when Master made the declaration about the importance of communities and Swamiji felt that it was a clarion call to him 
he really needed to do this. And this had been a previous interest of his before he met Master. At the age of 15, he thought that communities were the answer. So it was really his destiny, and he knew it. But the, 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 the way he had to live in order to start a community was really antithetical to what it, would, what it was to be a, a good celibate monk. You know, a good celibate monk wants to be with men and other monastics. You don't want to be fraternizing with everybody. Plus, in America, plus at the time in America, which was the 60s and 70s when, you know, morality was uh, disintegrating, although it, it looks pretty tame compared to the present, but at the time it was pretty radical. And he just couldn't come on with that stern world-renouncing energy. But he knew the, there was jeopardy for him in it. But he, he made the decision. I'll sacrifice everything, including my salvation, if necessary. Because if I, if I, if I can, am too concerned, he said, I'll never be able to do this work. And Master commissioned me to do this work. And I'll please my guru. It was tremendous courage. So in our particular life, and th these were things... It, it doesn't come upon you all the, the way it came upon us in those early years of Ananda Village because in those early years of the village we were very, very poor. We were very isolated. We just had no options. You know, now, especially living here, the village is still a little that way, but I mean, everybody in Ananda Village has a car and they can just drive off the property whenever they wanted to. I mean, we didn't have cars. Nine of us shared its little Volkswagen we shared two Volkswagens. The first one we called St. Clair. And uh, I personally, actually, I think, destroyed that car twice. <laughs> twice. Once I drove over a big rock and knocked the transmission out. And the other time, I put diesel fuel into it instead of gasoline. That wasn't entirely my fault, because somebody else gave it to me, but it was sort of my fault. So after that, we called the car uh, Rajasi. We thought that was a better affirmation than Claire. Claire was so impoverished. <laughs> but but there were, we, they, it had a sunroof, and I remember riding two in the front, three sitting in the back, and then three standing up through the sunroof, you know. But I mean, that was just, and we didn't even have that for long. That was incredible to have just even access to that car. It was such a big deal. I mean, I didn't feel, I didn't even feel even remotely deprived. Deprivation never entered my mind. I was at the center of the universe, and what more did I need? And you know, I came from a family. If I needed to be rescued, I wasn't poor like a person really can be poor. I chose to live a very simple life. If I had called my parents, they would have done anything for me that I needed within their modest means, but I wasn't really destitute. But effectively, I was destitute. Never even thought about it. But we were just so close. You know, you just, you had to do it. There was no, there was... If you, if you didn't show up, everybody knew you didn't show up. There was just no way, no way you could hide at all. It was pretty intense. And it just went on and on and on for years and years and years. And it blew a lot of people out. They just, I mean, they did it for as long as they could, and then they just, it didn't go for them. So the point being, you know, a lot of other things would come up. I need this. I need that. I want this. I want that. This is important to me. That's important to me. But there was just this unrelenting necessity to go with the program. And uh, it, was, it was great. It was just a great opportunity. That was when it's, that's why people would desperately say, we don't have to work so much. It says it right here. <laughs> and he was just dismissive like that. 
He didn't even like, you know, look at, oh, that's interesting. It was just like, it has nothing to do with us. So, and, and then, you know, all, uh, Swami didn't explain it, though. <clears throat> like I was just talking about uh, his own decisions and so on. He didn't explain all that for <clears throat> 20 years. He wanted us to find it. He wanted us to find it. And I remember, I, I've told you, I think this is relevant to what we're talking about. Yeah, about this work. Because when I came, I was very Vedantic. And I, I, was, I, was, I grew up with Ramakrishna first. And I really liked his intellectuality, just thrilled me. And I was totally, I, I was part of this little coterie of people, really brainy people, and we would just talk about it, you know. And we did a lot of that kind of theoretical reasoning, in as much as the world is a delusion, then we don't want to have anything to do with it, and why would we serve, you know, we, did, we, were, we were totally mixed up. But it, we, weren't, we weren't wrong entirely, we were just a little mixed up. Um, so when I got to Swamiji, I was on that track, total, this, on this track of he had the consciousness I wanted, I understood the guru-disciple relationship, I knew where I was, I knew exactly what I was doing, but it was all, I'm here to be with Swami. And we were in the middle of the community, the community was fun, I, it wasn't like I didn't enjoy it, I was cooking in the kitchen, I was just right in the middle of the whole story and I loved the people and it was just totally fun. But I was really, uh, a lot of me was split because my way of, of remaining a spiritual person was to constantly remind myself that it really didn't matter. That it was just like a hobby, that it didn't have any real value. And I remember being in the car with Swamiji in the back seat. He probably was driving himself or maybe Seva or Jyotish was driving him. But he was in the front and I was in the back and we were driving through the community and I was looking out the window and whenever I w was with Swamiji, to the end of my life, I always felt like a little child. So when I think of myself there, I think of myself as I was when, I, when my daddy would drive and I was six, you know. So somehow I see myself as just peering out of the top of the window, but I was a full-grown person, so probably I was looking straight out. But I feel like I was peering like a kid. And I saw the community going by. And... Swami was in front of me and I'm looking out and, and I just realized in the phrase came to me like this Swamiji has given his life's blood to make this community and, and I was, had this sort of spiritually superior attitude that of course I'll help but really what difference does it make but I never saw Swamiji be dismissive he acted as if um, his own salvation depended on it and, it, and two things crossed my mind. One, fortunately, what are the chances that I'm right and he's wrong? That was what I would always ask myself when I would disagree with him, which I, I did many times. You know, but what are the chances? Like, how did I even learn these principles? I learned them from him. So what are the chances that I have got it right and he's got it wrong? And I knew the odds weren't good, so I tried to... Um, at least try to tune into his reality. So that was the first part of it. The second part of it was actually, I realized, even more profound. I considered Swamiji my best friend. I still do. He was, he was so um, attentive and generous. I mean, I was just one of what turned out to be tens of thousands of people by the end of his life. Amazing numbers of people that he communicated with and kept in touch with. I mean, he just had these long email relationships with people that the people who were with him on a day-to-day -day basis didn't even know were happening. 
people who had very close connections. But with me, he was, he was just, um, he, 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 there was no boundaries to his attentiveness to my well-being. It was friendship like I'd never even dreamed existed. And he was giving his life's blood for this project. And I was helping him, you know, like with this slightly superior, if you want to do it, isn't that cute, but I'm here for self-realization. And I just thought, just on the, on the pure basis of friendship, this is wrong. You know, if, if I'm his friend, if I want to be a friend to him the way he is a friend to me, then I have to embrace what he has embraced. And I was already active, but I just saw it really differently. It was many years before I really, in my own self, understood Master's mission you know, the way Swami understood it. I, I gradually came uh, of my own to really uh, understand what we were doing. But at first I did it um, because Swami was doing it, and I figured I would do better to follow in his footsteps than to follow in my own. And also I did it because he needed help. And if I wasn't going to help him, who was? Meaning, if a person like me was not going to help him, who was helping? Who would help him? And how could I just let him go on alone when I was right there and could pick up pieces of it, at least as best I could? And that's where uh, Jesus in the Bible says to his disciples, You called me master, but I call you friend. He said, because a servant assists his master, but to a servant his home is always elsewhere. And the cause of the master, he serves it, but it's never his own. He said, but a friend picks up the burden and carries it with you. And Jesus was both instructing and commending his disciples because they understood uh, you know, what the relationship really was. And that's where master actually says the highest relationship is friend to friend. And in the Gita, there's an interchange between Arjuna and Krishna talks about how Krishna smiled at Arjuna. And the commentary that Swami wrote about that has to do with how Arjuna had advanced to the point where Krishna was his friend. And what, what that really meant on so many levels. Just beautiful thoughts. You, know, you go into a scripture like the Gita and just that little interchange between Arjuna and Krishna and so much is implied in there. It's just uh, this is why Swamiji spent his whole life on the guru-disciple relationship and how at the end of his life all he wanted to know was that he'd been a good disciple. If he was a good disciple, you know, nothing else mattered because everything is there. That's what the imitation of Christ is. That's the Thomas Akempis just honing and honing and honing his relationship to Jesus. You know, just getting himself in exactly the right position for his own bhav, for what he was really doing and just finding it. And at the end of Swami's life, at the beginning of Swami's life, he used to give these amazingly complicated, in-depth expositions of the teachings. Just, you go back and through treasures, 
along the path. There's many of these old recordings from the from the 70s and from the 80s. And he was the main one teaching, and he was just teaching us everything. And every class he gave, it was like it was, it was like he had a two-hour lecture, and he only had 90 minutes. And he just, he would just go so powerful and so fast and so complicated and so marvelous. And uh, that's where I and many others learned everything uh, that we know. <laughs> and uh, But at the end of his life, he just told the story over and over and over again about finding autobiography and going to Los Angeles and sitting down with Master and Master initiating him and giving him his unconditional love and Swami loving Master. It was, it was like, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't that he didn't know, it was that everything else, all of that talking, he, it was all there, you know, just here. It was all in the vibration of that experience. Everything else was just um, window dressing on this part of it. And his life just got so simple. And, and it was, anyway, it was really something. Okay, let's take a break. I think, is there, is there anything about what we were discussing before the break that we need to carry on with, or have we done it? Okay. Um, oh, I know what I, the other thought that I had dropped. I knew it would come back to me. It, it, was, it was floating out there doing the other, but I was confused. Um, I think this is in the path. This is about uh, that the work we do matters, but what matters most is God, and it's a slight reverse to this. When Master was trying to finish the golden towers at either the Encinitas or the Lakeshore, and I'm not sure which for one of those. And remember, he, he was just had everybody working so much, and one man who was critical to the project just didn't show up one day. And the next day, Master said to him, where were you? He said, sir, I was meditating. Oh, well, why didn't you say so? Master said. <laughs> Obviously, he'd felt that it was important for him to do it, so of course that mattered much more. And it was also clearly sincere and not um, like the way the man had tried to persuade Swami. He was trying to, can't we just do less with lower energy? So that was a, you know, the completely different response to different situations. Um, what was the other that I was trying to remember? Um, I remember when someone, at an, Swami had someone at, Ananda, someone at Ananda really working all the time, didn't leave them much time to do anything else. And uh, the person was inclined to be moody. And so someone else said, don't you know, so-and-so works too much, and right in front of the other woman. So-and-so works too much, Swami, don't you think she should take some time off? Swami looked very sternly at the girl speaking and said, I know what is best for her. Just like that. Because if she had any time to herself, she did not use it to elevate her consciousness. Her consciousness went down. And she had to, in order to keep her energy level above that downward pulling energy, she just had to keep putting the energy out. And gradually over time, the energy shifted. But for a lot of us, it was that. We'd, we did not know how to be sattvic. We knew how to be rajasic or tamasic. And if we were not being rajasic, we were not being sattvic. We were being tamasic. And that's one of the reasons he had us working so much, until we learned how to maintain high energy even when we weren't outwardly stimulated in doing things. So that was also the balance point that he was working with. That's what one has to look for for oneself. You know, in the name of, I need some time for myself, what self are we giving time to? And on the other side of that is, one has to be realistic. And a part of what happens at Ananda 
is you have to have the courage of your own self-awareness to say, I'm going home now. <laughs> you know, even though the project is still going on, I'm done, I'm finished. And you know, whatever I'm going home to, I'm leaving, I'm leaving now because it's not going to help if I stay here. There's the story that's also in the path about uh, the man who had the terrible temper. And uh, he had an argument with one of the devotees and he walked off the job site. It was one of the other guru boys, and he said to him, don't go away mad. He said, do you want me to stay here and go away madder? <laughs> you know, he just, he'd reached his limit and he knew it. And that's what you also have to learn with Ananda because, you know, this is a divine mission of infinite proportions and you'll never hit the bottom of it, ever. In the, all the years that I've been in the colony, here in the position that I've had and I've given this advice to others, I said, you just have to realize that you will never get it done. If you're creative at all, you will never get it done. So you just do everything you can every day, but just don't imagine that if you just work a little harder, finish. There's just not a chance in the world. So you just have to keep the flow of energy going, and you have to keep the magnetism right. And, and that's life itself. You don't just, you're never going to finish until you're dead. And if you're inwardly free, then you, then you can walk away. But prior to that, so the goal goes back to where we started, peace and freedom inside. Okay, number 167. Television appeared on the market only late in the Master's life. He cautioned us against watching it too much. Television has a satanic influence. That's a pretty straightforward statement, isn't it? He said, don't let yourselves be too fascinated by it. Seek instead the television of superconscious visions in the spiritual eye. And so it went when Swamiji made a very serious effort to keep television out of Ananda village. I mean, this was, at the time, first it was just television because videos had only just started. Finally, they, they, they compromised, but he, he really didn't want television to come in. It was it's one of those very interesting discussions. I have to decide how to treat it in the book. Swami basically said, let's not have television. And somebody tongue-in-cheek wrote the minutes later, there are all these community discussions trying to understand Swami, the, the word uh, no. <laughs> People are trying to intuit what Swami meant by the word no. <laughs> but it just had a strong pull. And uh, so they started a video library and there was the thought that the televisions would all be communal and they would, you would have to check one out and carry it home. And, you know, it gradually it, it all... And, and for a long time there was no reception or very little and it all managed itself but all those days are past but it was you know he just he really he I don't know what he, he I don't know what he you know, what's happened now with whatever you would call screen media I mean it's just a whole another world I mean that was just literally television was just coming on the market at the end but he says television has a satanic influence wow that's quite something well, you can see the way it affects. You see it especially with children, the way they can just stare, which they never do at other times, which, of course, is such a great relief for parents. It's just too tempting. But it just, it, it hypnotizes them. And, and, and I've watched it. When I missed, uh, 
when I missed the plane when I was in Rome on the way to Jerusalem and I missed the plane sitting right in the airport and the plane took off when I was sitting right there was because there had been television screens in front of me facing the gate which I would normally have done and I just couldn't they were actually advertising screens but they were so intense I turned my back on them which meant I turned my back on the gate and the combination which all of you may remember this was the second plane I missed was that the battery on my watch was dying but it didn't my watch did not stop but my watch slowed down to be 45 minutes late so that when finally I knew it was time to get on the plane it was actually 45 minutes later and so when I turned around it was gone I mean what a combination and and I and there was and there are no uh, clocks in airports anymore so that was the second plane that I missed trying to get from Rome to Jerusalem and then at first I just freaked out because what where did the gate go where were the people and I sort of was and I was not at my best I, I was not um, inwardly at peace yeah <laughs> I was really shaggy and I just finally found I mean, I mean in Rome and a lot of people speak English but not everyone and I finally found somebody to talk to me and I said you know I was, I'm right there it's like look and I and look at the time and he took my boarding pass and he said well this plane left you know 45 minutes ago no no and, and he looks at my watch he tells me my watch is wrong at which point and it's still running <laughs> at this point I just went you know God really does not want me to be there and I went back and checked back into the hotel that I had so gleefully left a couple of hours earlier what a time but it was all because of the television screen <laughs> really that's really why it happened because I, I'm, I'm an experienced traveler especially when I'm alone you know I was sitting right at the gate and I always face the gate because I'm an airhead and I know that but that just the, the television screens were so intense I just couldn't I couldn't bear it yeah. Yeah. So Amiji comments about how quick the images move like that. You know, just I mean, we're trying to concentrate in there, you're just going like this, quite apart from the content. You know, and Swami would watch movies. We we watch movies often. He would often have people um in his house. It was one of the ways he could be with people without actually having to do anything. He would just put on a movie and he would sit there and you would sit was and you'd watch a movie and I always thought there was a lot more going on. We watched the same movies many times. He had just, again, toward the end of his life, Bambi, Cim Cinderella, every once is often, you know, and uh, a few others toward the end. But, uh, they had in Sacramento, they had a Swami's Favorite Movies Festival. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I made a list with Nirmala. We could, if anybody wants to take it on, I have the list. <laughs> I mean, it's a very eclectic collection. It includes uh, the original version of An Affair to Remember and uh, also another love story called Random Harvest, which are stories of, of noble, self-sacrificing human love. Not the way they end up being made now, but the way that when, when people had more dignity when they made movies. And Bambi and Cinderella and and more nice yeah yeah we're of an age where we remember 
But nonetheless, it just you have to just hear that. Television has a satanic influence. It's like, what do you think he means by satanic? You know, it's like, it's just like, <laughs> no, but I mean like, no, like what does he mean by no? So it, I, I know that all of us need outlets. And few of us, if we, if we turn the screws too tightly, then it, we won't be able to hold it. And so this is, again, this is a really serious part of being on the spiritual path, is you have to find your honest, realistic position and be willing to hold it and not feel that you have to try to mold yourself into teachings that don't really resonate with you. I, I remember talking to someone who, who actually kind of left Ananda for a long time. He just kind of flipped out, couldn't handle it. There were a lot of complicated reasons, but one of them was he just kept trying to live by teachings that didn't apply to him. And he sort of said, well, how did you feel about that? And I said, it never crossed my mind that I should try to conform to that teaching. It was just like, you know, like so far beyond me. How could I even, I just saw it and I just knew that it was not for me. And that doesn't mean it's not true, it's just not for me at this time. When Swami was writing the uh, essence of the Bhagavad Gita commentary, and there's a section in there where he describes how, as a jivan mukta in meditation, you can uh, work out the remaining karma from your previous incarnations. And it, it's not exactly a step-by-step manual, but it's pretty explicit. And various things that you can do. And I jokingly said to Swami, I often joked when I shouldn't have, Swami, this, this chapter is not going to apply to very many, but total seriously, because he knew what he was doing. Yes, he said, but those to whom it will apply will find it very useful. Just like that. So it's like, I'm, I'm not going to sit in a cave somewhere and work out my past karma just by visualizing it. I mean, crazy. Nor am I going to stay up all night meditating or never watch a television screen. I don't have a television, but you're just like, I'm just not going to do it. So let's just do what we do. And I mean, I remember with Swamiji... I never listen to country music because I just don't listen to it, but I like it. I just think it's fun. You know, the goofy stories and the, and the twangy stuff about it. And I just remember the first time I had the nerve to just say to Swami, oh, I like it. And it was just like, and he responded to me in a very nice way. I think he knew. It was just, what you see is what you get. And it, I'm not, I'm not going to make a case for it, but I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Why would I? What good will it do me? And it, it wasn't just facing him. He was symbolic of just these things. Like Swami said to Master, bless me that I can overcome my attachment to good food. And Master dismissively said, oh, when ecstasy comes, everything goes. And to Swami, it loomed quite large. Um, but to Master, it, it was, just, this is just where you're at. Don't worry about it. You're doing everything else that you need to do. And in, in uh good time, it'll all come together. So, because in, in, in the Catholic tradition, because they've been at it so long, they actually have the word called overscrupulosity, where you just become more and more obsessive about all the little things you should be doing and more and more concerned about everything you're not. And generally speaking, it blows you out of the path. I, I went there for a, a period of time, and Swami just said to me, um, God, uh, God doesn't want you to be unhappy 
He said, that's your imposition on this. He said, if you make the path so narrow, you won't be able to stay on it. So I've come to appreciate, make it wide enough that you can walk. And uh, things will fall away. They just do by themselves. And it's the challenge of the path to have the confidence to just be who you are. Okay? 168. But it, it doesn't hurt to have to know that Master said television has a satanic influence. So we don't have to just, like, justify it. We just say, oh, wow. This is not really something I should cultivate, but there you have it. Here I am. And like the man who did Kriya, had Kriya beads in one hand and a bottle of whiskey in the other. And somebody said, how, you know, how dare you? And he said, well, I can't do anything about my alcoholism or whatever they called it then, but I can do my Kriya. So he would take a little whiskey and then he would do some Kriyas. And then one day he said, the man said, he just looked at his beads and looked at his whiskey and he put the whiskey down. I mean, what would he have done if he said, I can't, I can't do the whiskey. I can't, I'm not worthy of doing Kriya because I've got the whiskey. It's just like, I just keep doing what I can and it'll teach me itself. Well, I'd be, it li- you're liberated because of your own perception, not because of I should be different. You, you just perceive, this is really not giving me anything I want, so I think I won't do this anymore. But as long as you think it's enjoyable, you can't just sell yourself, no, it's not, because it is. You're lying to yourself, and you get just this incredible, then not only do you have the desire, but you have this incredible complex that you've created around it. Enough to just have the desire. Just have the desire. Let it be there. Let it sit there. Don't say it's a good thing, but don't worry about it. Just there it is. When ecstasy comes, everything goes away. And just do what you can that's positive and just leave it sit there because then you only have one problem, you know, instead of a plethora of them that are created by guilt. And I was saying to someone the other day, for a long time I thought if I just kept bullying myself that I would uh, change. But I gradually observed that was not a very effective technique. <laughs> just, you know, we don't respond to bullies. It doesn't work. Yes. You need the microphone, Karen? <clears throat> I, think that's, I think that's why Master said, never count your faults. Just ask whether you love God. And as I'm seeing it now, it's really because it takes you into a whole spin you know, into a whole downward spin, really, with all that we create around that. And really, it's just a very simple decision about, you know, are we going to choose to think about that, or are we just going to choose to think about if we love God in any moment? And that's, that's pretty simple. It's very simple. The closer you get to the truth, the simpler it gets. That's because you're getting closer to the one. All the complexity comes when you're farther away from the one. It's just like a simple thing like that. Don't count your faults. Just think about, concentrate on loving God. I mean, how many times can you hear that? And then one day you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you go beyond the ink and the paper and the words. And all of a sudden it just speaks to you and you really understand why he said it. That's why you come to the same, you read the same books over, you come to satsangs over and over again because you're on a spiral staircase and the same realities just look so different to you than they, than they did at a different point. And that the imitation of Christ, I suddenly understood that and it's sort of abject humility, I finally got what they were really doing there, even though I'd heard about it forever. 
But suddenly, oh, I understand this. Understanding why I needed to help Swami build Ananda. And gradually, why I had to build Ananda. I mean, I had to commit myself. First, I was just helping him. And then when they had occurred to me, oh, this is not just helping him. This is my job. It's, it, I mean, you can say those words, and I could have said those words many times earlier, but on a certain day, it's like, oh, you know, I really understand, but this is what I was born to do. I didn't just stumble into this. I wasn't just born to hang out with Swami. I was born to do this. And it, just, it has nothing to do with me personally. It's just the, 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 the principles just get deeper and deeper into you, and all of a sudden, it just looks different than it looked before. And that's the challenge of self-realization, this path, is that there's no, you can't, you can't just get this little book. This is what you do at the beginning, and then this is what you do after this, and then this is what you do after this. And if you just follow these rules and do these certain rituals and have these priests intercede for you, then you're, then you're home free. It's like you, re- you read here, and then you read here, and then you turn it upside down, and then you read there, and then you look over here, and then the book burns up in your hand, and you go pick up another one. I mean, it's just like the personification of nonlinear. <laughs> there it is. All right. Let's do 168, if we can. I once asked the Master if... <clears throat> during classes that I was giving for new monks, it would be all right to include a few stories from the life of Krishna. To my surprise, he replied cautiously. This is always what's so fun. You, you go and you think that it's so obvious. And so he just assumed he would, you know, I'm going to talk about Krishna. And Master replies cautiously. It's all right to tell them a few of those stories, he said, but be careful to choose only those with a clear message. The stories of Krishna, especially those of his boyhood in Vrindavan, are allegorical. They have been greatly misunderstood by Westerners and by many Indians as well. Westerners, especially when reading them, think the gopis were ordinary young women enjoying the emotion of human love. Actually, the gopis were incarnated rishis, sages. They took birth to show allegorically the soul's relationship with the Divine Beloved. There was nothing sensual or impure in that relationship. Worldly people, when they hear those stories, project onto them their own sensual or selfish tendencies. The reality wasn't like that at all. Those stories were intended to win people away from lust and desire. Therefore, I say, be careful how you present them in your classes. That's one of the reasons Master never talked about soulmates. There was only one place when he talked about soulmates, when he was commenting on the Bible passage, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Um, people interpret that to mean that marriage, that divorce is forbidden by the Bible. And, you know, in Catholicism especially, it's just been this gigantic thing, a prohibition against divorce in the most, you know, horrific cases. And to a certain extent in some Indian families, even in the most horrific cases, you're just never supposed to get divorced. And when Master was taking that passage, he knew how terribly it had been misinterpreted, and so he felt he needed to correct it. And so he talked about soulmates. He talked about, you know, the soul being created from God dual, and that there really is this um, opposite, that before you attain liberation, those opposites have to meet. 
and, and then you can go on. And he, he just said it like that. And Swami said it's the only place he ever talked about it. Because if Master had even breathed it, even given anybody the slightest idea that soulmates were an option, as, as uh, Master himself said, everyone would forget about God and spend all their time looking for their soulmate. Be and then imagine that he, was, he or she was lurking on every street corner. I mean, already in the, on the spiritual path or people in the th throes of romantic intensity project upon their human relationships great divine meaning which may or may not be there. And Swamiji talks about you know that that <clears throat> that the the power of that union in the context of before you attain liberation that union has to happen it must be complete transcending all romance or physicality or lustful energy because if you were still in that you you wouldn't be able to go off into the infinite and it's not necessarily uh complementary genders or romantic at all. It's two halves. You can be the same gender. You can be mother and child. You can be guru and disciple. Um, it's just, it's, it's who knows. And it, it's a mystery. Swami wrote as much as he could write about it in Love Perfected Life Divine. And he took Marie Corelli's original novel, which was fascinating, but also extremely romantic. And he took out, he elevated the whole thing because she herself had an intuition but not a clear one. So when people read the Radhakrishna stories, it's the same thing. It's like this, this longing, this God-implanted longing for, for, to find a, a complementary union. It's just, it's all of us are compelled by it. However we express it, it doesn't express in everyone in the desire to marry, it doesn't express in everyone in, in uh, physical uh, sexuality, but, but everyone has this innate longing, this innate feeling of, love, of the desire for love. Of course, we direct that toward God, and this whole idea of the soulmate is just so mysterious. I, it's impossible to know how that for me at least, it's impossible to know how it would really work and it's one of those things like, there's a beautiful story of Corey Ten Boom who was this marvelous uh, Christian oriented saint who wrote a beautiful book called The Hiding Place about her family's uh, rescuing Jews during the Second World War. They were, they were a Christian family in Amsterdam Amsterdam or somewhere in Holland and they rescued lots of Jews but she talked about and eventually went to concentration camp because of it but she talked about when she was a child and her father was so loving and so wise and sometimes she would ask questions of her father that were bigger than her little body, her little self could understand. And he said to her, when we go on a railway journey, when do I give her your ticket? You know, she said, well, you give it to me just before we get on the train. He says, that's right. He said, and so it is with God in some of these understandings. He can't give them to you too soon because you, you, you wouldn't be able to take care of them. But just before you get on the train, it'll be given to you. <laughs> so I sort of think about the question of soulmates and things like that. Well, it, and working out karma as a Jeevan Mukta, you know. It's like, when it's relevant, I'll know. And God will give me the ticket at that point. And until then, we just muddle along and do our best. 
It's the same as everything I was saying. We just operate according to the best that we understand, and Swami has reassured us many times that God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the confused mind. And so many times circumstances were very well-intentioned and ultimately uh, completely foolish. But if we had known that at the time, we wouldn't have done it, would we? Because at the time we were moving with the best that we knew. And uh, when we finish that, then we know more. And we're able to go on from there. Um, there's more to say on this, so I think I'll just stop for now and we can go back to Radhakrishna next week. Okay, so we went from, I think, 166 through, um, we're in the middle of uh, 168 right now. Thank you. And why don't we have Tom come up here and give you a little blessing? We've given you lots of blessings, but you've been so integral to this story. Come and... Yeah, hundreds of people who watch these see This is the guy. <laughs> all right, why don't you all stand up and let's just give him a blessing. Visualize Tom and Susan just ever filled with Master's light, taking their wonderful divine spirit and Master's love for them to another room of the ashram. Some hundreds of miles away, but it's just another room of the ashram. So rubbing our hands together. You've made things very lively on many an occasion. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> but he won't be here in the moment. Okay. Om, om, om. God bless you, friend. Yeah.